Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Product. I'm your host, Zach Darnell. And today, I've got a phenomenal guest, my friend Abhishek Nayak. He is uh, one of the co-founders and CEO over at a company called AppSmith. And really, their mission is to bring simplicity at scale for uh, engineers and enabling engineers to build tools to help them do their jobs better, to serve their teams, their companies, to help them focus on the things that are most important to them, but uh, not not really bog them down with too much complexity to build their own tooling and, and capability to help them do their jobs. And I got to say, this is Nayak's third startup. And uh, he started out in a B2B uh, product, then went to a B2C product, and is back to more of a B2B product and has just had a phenomenal journey over the last 11 years and uh, a lot of wisdom to share and was incredibly human. So I really love this show. Um, it, it was one of my most favorite conversations to have and to get to know him. And we actually might do a follow-up him here soon in the coming months uh, to go super deep into AppSmith and how they actually uh, prioritize work and engage with their customers and work in this open source environment. It was just it was just a wonderful conversation. So really hope you enjoy. And as always, have a wonderful day and I hope you're doing well. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Joining me, my friend Nayak. Nayak, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really well, Zach. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to talk to you about product and how to build that. Just excited that I get to talk about this. Yeah, me too. Well, it's one of the things we like to talk about here on Behind the Product is product. <laughs> Hence the name. So I'm, well, we're excited as well. And you, you've done this a few times. You're, you're on your third startup. But let's let's kind of go back to introducing you and uh, maybe your journey through the first couple. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So tell us a little bit about you and uh, kind of how you got your start in the entrepreneurial product world. Uh, sounds great. So I actually studied biological sciences in my undergrad, which I think is probably the the worst kind of skill set that you can have going into the software world. Uh, so that's what I studied in undergrad. Uh, but while I was studying uh, biology, I was also coding on the side and I was also doing a little bit of graphic design. And oh, wow. those experiences uh, definitely helped me quite a bit. And this I'm talking about is between 2005 to 2010 uh, when I was still in university. Uh, the, the main thing that I actually learned during that phase was you can build anything that you want. Uh, yeah. Because I was just building a lot of side projects which weren't being successful. Uh, so then I realized that the real skill is actually in choosing the correct things to work on and ensuring you're able to build them the right way. Uh, so that was a big light bulb moment when I was still in college because uh, I'd built so many side projects that I realized uh, I just need to choose the correct ones to work on and that's the only way I can be successful. Uh, 
So right after graduating, I ended up starting a company uh, called Gharpe, which was in the cash on delivery space in India. Uh, and uh, uh, this might sound really medieval to people in the US or in Europe, but in India, 50% of e-commerce purchases are made by paying through cash. Uh, that's That was the case 10 years ago, and it's oh, wow. still the case today. 50%. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what we were trying to do was ensure paying in cash is very simple for people who are trying to pay, as well as companies who want to accept it as a form of payment. Uh, so that was the first thing that I did. Uh, we, we scaled it to uh, about uh, $12 million worth of transactions every month and wow. uh, had uh, a very large feet on street network who was collecting cash. Uh, and this is a startup uh, where we also raised a seed round from Sequoia Capital India. Uh, I think we were one of their first ever seed investments in India. Wow. Uh, we finally exited that startup after two and a half years, uh, sold it to a company which went public about a month ago. Uh, so that was that was pretty nice uh, to see that happen. That's yeah, that's uh, fascinating that that there's that much cash transaction still happening because I I am very if I could didn't have to carry a car key or a wallet ever again I'd be the happiest person on the planet. Uh, I'm I'm very much uh, is digital and is is like let me tap my phone <laughs> to do everything kind of person. So uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I wonder how much in I wonder how much that is compared to to the U.S. and Europe. Or maybe some other countries. If is, do you know? Is there any? Are there any statistics about that? Was that like a part of your, uh, part of the research that you did around that that uh, that that product, or was it just to serve India? So, uh, so we were very focused on just serving India. The thing is, I I did remember US used to have about six or seven percent, uh, but this was about fourteen years ago. I oh, don't wow. think that's the case anymore. I think it would probably be zero today. Wow. There, there used to be a couple of companies which were letting Amazon pay in cash, rather than letting Amazon consumers pay in cash to Amazon. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the names, but but there was sure. one that was funded by Khosla Ventures, I remember. Uh, but, the, but the main thing was Indian markets are totally different from the American markets. Yeah, Indian consumers yeah. behave very, very differently. And there's one strata of the Indian society, which is probably no different from how consumers in New York or San Francisco behave. But then there is the other strata of consumers who behave uh, very similar to how, you know, people in maybe like the most backward, uh, technologically backward countries behave. Uh, So it's a very fascinating country because of the wide spectrum of users that you tend to deal with. Uh, so product management can be exceptionally difficult here because you have no idea who your actual target segment is. Yeah. Uh, but it's also fascinating because you can have all sorts of businesses survive at the very same time. Yeah, I was going to ask one of the things that came to my mind, if that, that seems like a very, you know, sometimes the best ideas are, are sometimes the most obvious after you after you've thought of it. It's not obvious up until that point. How many competitors were in the market when you when you guys were trying to scale this business? Was there was just a couple of players? Had people already been doing this, or um, uh, were you one of the first to market? Uh, so we had other courier services doing this already, but for them it was a side business for them mm. uh, because back then they did not look at e-commerce as a large source of their revenue. Okay. Uh, 
they never had real time apis to update status uh, they didn't make it easy for people to get the cash back sure uh, and neither did they make it easy for customers to get a refund uh, you know when mm. they decided they wanted to return the product so this experience hadn't been thought through so we were the first company which actually thought through that experience and delivered it as a highly focused service uh, we did right. nothing but deal with cash on delivery for e-commerce wow it's a uh, very so strategic up, niche for you guys absolutely absolutely oh, extremely yeah. focused uh, we had really strong pricing power in that market cuz uh, i don't remember giving a discount beyond the first 5 customers we had and when we exited the company we had around 900 customers wow uh, we never gave a discount beyond the first 5 cuz we had so much pricing power in the market cuz there was mm-hmm. nobody else who was providing that experience uh, and we were just able to charge uh what we wanted and that wow. really taught me a big lesson uh which i still apply it at appsmith which is if you're a unique player in a market that desperately needs your product uh you can actually start by charging small but you can keep increasing your prices and uh, customers yeah pretty quickly and customers will be happy to pay you that cuz you're uh giving that value so that's that's, that's so fascinating really wow All right, let's let's fast forward to exited from from this company and on to company number 2. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. Uh so uh after I le- uh, after I exited my first startup I worked for a little bit uh, at the company that acquired us and then I took a short break. Uh so this was a period of about uh, one and a half two years of me working and then taking a break for around six sure. months or so. So uh that's when I realized the thing that I love the most is actually working on technology that's hard but something that doesn't deal with atoms i realized you know i lost a lot of hair i started graying prematurely because of my first startup because it was sure. exceptionally stressful running yeah. it day in and day out so i wanted to do something that was pure software uh, where i did not have to deal with atoms anything in the real world uh, so my so my second startup was It was very fascinating because I started with a clear technology in mind, which was AI. I wanted to automate certain things, and uh, this is 2016, 2017 when it was still the early days of AI. Things were getting hot, though. Uh, investors were willing to invest. Customers were willing to listen to mm-hmm. AI products. So I thought that was a great time to start a startup. The mistake that we made was uh, we started with the technology in mind, but we never figured out what product we would actually sell till the first 6 months had gone by uh, so we ended up deciding to automate customer support because uh, we realized that's a company's org and any savings that you make on customer support uh, you know directly shows up in your profit uh, which is just amazing we decided to automate customer support Uh, the reason we chose customer support was because we thought uh, that's one of the first places where ai should automate that piece uh, people don't generally enjoy doing customer support uh, it costs a lot of money so therefore your margins get affected mm. uh, and third customer support just doesn't scale as quickly as your company sometimes does yeah so you need to uh, you know automate this uh, the problem was we were thinking about this outside in none of us none of the three founders had ever worked on customer support at scale before uh we had only experienced good and bad customer support as consumers but we had never actually uh done anything about it ourselves right uh, so we just tackled that industry because we thought it needs to be automated uh 
Uh, and for this particular startup, we ended up raising money from Axel Partners and from Y Combinator. Uh, but uh, literally within, I would say, about eight months of us launching the product, uh, it was very clear that we weren't actually serving a need. Or mm. even if we were serving a need, it wasn't effective enough that companies were willing to uh, stay and be retained with us. Uh, we had a lot of companies coming in and signing up, but they would only pay us for a month and then they would churn out the next month. Uh, and this is the experience that we went through for about eight or nine months. Uh, and uh, this is the period when I decided, okay, uh, Bicycle AI isn't really working out. And mind you, before these eight months that we had spent after launch, we had spent a good year and a half just building the product. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, uh, you know, over two years of work that has gone into doing this and it's just not working out. Uh, so we decided to stop working completely on AI and actually completely pivot to something else uh, because all of us had been sick and tired of spending so much time on AI and it not going anywhere. Uh, yeah. So we decided, let's just build something that we want, uh, something that we would love to use and then we're going to just build it out, launch it and see what happens. Because uh, uh, this was literally at the bottom of our mojo. Uh, we were just feeling so tired and frustrated uh, yeah. at the end of you know two and a half years of yeah. doing this. So we decided to build a game and decided to build a trivia game because that's something that uh, I was really good at, which was trivia. Uh, and I thought, hey, let's just do like a trivia game, which is a mix of uh, there was something called as HQ Trivia in the US that was taking mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, these other trivia products and other trivia games that existed. The idea was to do something that was a marriage of two, uh, but something that I personally wanted to play. And that was the aim. That's all. That uh, Let's build something that I would love so that uh, we can build it and actually see if it succeeds or not. Because building something that we thought other people would love was not working out for us. Yeah. Uh, so we just decided to do this. Uh, so we spent 45 days building this product out. We actually launched it one week after I got married, you know, because we were on a tight deadline and we were about to run out of money. So we just had to do uh, like a wow. final sort of a expedition, a final yeah. quest yeah. to uh, to do this. So we built out this game thing uh, within 45 days. The crazy thing is uh, within the first 60 months of it of its launch, uh, we were at 120,000 DAUs, 120,000 wow. people playing the game yeah. every single day yeah. uh, and about 50,000 people playing it concurrently. Uh, it was a shocking scale for us because we went from completely failing to actually mm -hmm. having something that people were loving to use and people were talking about it. And those two months were an extraordinary period for us because we learned so much about what does growth mean, uh, what does yeah. retention mean and uh, what does building a consumer product mean? Because it was the first time we were ever building a consumer product. I'd only done B2B products before. Yeah. Uh, so, so that experience really taught me that if you build something that you truly love and uh, you focus very much on that, on just satisfying what is it that you think is necessary, there is a chance it might succeed. Yeah. Uh, we obviously responded to user feedback very quickly, uh, tweaked the game levels, tweaked the way the game works so that uh, you know, uh, it becomes easier to play, easier to adopt. Uh, so we did all of that very quickly, but it did start with the need that I personally had. Uh, mm. So that definitely taught me something. One of the things that we also learned about games three months after this was games tend to go up and then they disappear. 
because sure yeah very quick log diffusion they go they go through the curve really quick exactly exactly yeah have you yeah. ever worked on games have you built games before I, I i personally have never played in that space i play a lot of video games but i've right. never worked on I, that would be a that would be a really fun project i'm i'm sure yeah yeah i also play a lot of games uh, but i think all of us know this we get obsessed with a game for two or three months yes and then we never play it again yes you know we never go back to it uh, we might talk about it, uh, we might reminisce about it, but we never go back to it. So that's something that happened to this particular game as well. Uh, we hit 120,000 DAUs in two months. It grew to about 140,000 DAUs in the next month after that. And then it kept falling slowly, slowly, yeah. slowly. Because the retention, long-term retention was just not there yet. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately for us, this was a free-to-play game. Uh, and we just couldn't figure out the right business model for this. Yeah. Uh, so we decided to shut this and actually move on from this. We had some capital left over, which we ended up just returning uh, to our investors. Sure. Uh, and we just decided to part our ways. I I went and joined Excel as an invest, uh, as an entrepreneur in residence, uh, yeah. where I was working with existing startups, but also helping the investing team figure out new areas to look at. Uh, and my co-founders, they went to other companies. So that was the end of uh, this journey. So before we hop into um, your your third startup and the one that you're working on right now, I'm I'm curious that transition. I feel like I've talked to people uh, about a transition from either B to C to B to B or or vice versa. And you went from you know serving business market to to you know direct to consumer. I'm curious, you know, what are the one or, what's what's one or two things that you felt like you really walked away with from that experience that is just starkly different between the two markets, how you would tackle B2B versus B2C. What did you walk away with? I'm, I'm just curious. I feel like everybody walks away with a different experience. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the first, the first thing that I learned was word of mouth is the most powerful way of growing. And yeah. there's absolutely no marketing spend in the world that can come close to word of mouth growth. Yeah, uh, that's something that I learned. I think in B two B, because we tend to have smaller marketing budgets, mm-hmm. uh, we think we can advertise our way into a lot of revenue. Uh, but I just realized that in B two C, word of mouth is so strong that there's you know hundreds of millions of dollars of budget cannot come close to uh, you know what even ten thousand people can uh, can get for you in terms of virality. Yeah. Yeah. Just go, go tell five friends. Remember, like you've got to be playing this thing. Yeah. Hop on here yeah. with me. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, so that's something I'm I'm applying in AppSmith, where uh, we don't do paid marketing, we don't do outbound cold email at all. We've mm-hmm. still grown like a consumer product, uh, and that's mm-hmm. something I learned. The second thing that I learned was that the velocity of feedback in a B two C product is way higher. Yeah. It's just exponentially higher than for a B two B product. So B2C products just naturally get better a lot quicker simply because you are just getting a lot more feedback. So engineering teams that that have worked in B2C will tend to be a little more skillful and a little more competent in Mm -hmm. the same things that a B2B company might be doing. Uh, The B2B engineering teams generally just have it a lot more relaxed than a consumer company does. Uh, That's honestly my, my experience. Do you think that that impacted what you worked on? Did that change how you looked at prioritizing work 
between the two companies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, when it comes to B2C, we, one of the things that I noticed was if you have ideas for two or three features, only one of them is going to work widely. Everything mm-hmm. else is very easy for you to discard because uh, you have enough data telling you uh, this is not working out. Versus in B2B products, what I've noticed is it's very easy to have features that kind of seem like they're working, but you just don't have the intuition or the data to mm. go pull the trigger and actually kill those features so that you can work on that one thing that's working really well. Yeah. Uh, in B2B, I've just found it's a lot easier to have features which should have actually been killed, but yes. you're just living with them and your customers right. are living with them. Uh, and you have to maintain that forever, uh, which just sucks. Uh, yeah, so I'm like, trying to be a little diff- more uh, cutthroat about it this time. That's that's interesting. I feel like uh, I've I've definitely had similar experience where, let's say you've got um, uh, I don't know easy example easy math. You've got three three features that mm-hmm. they're all being used by uh, a fairly equal measure of your user base. Mm-hmm. We'll call it thirty three percent for easy math. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you know which like you know from a metric perspective? Um, you know, your daily active users might be uh, all contributing to those those three features in in a in mm-hmm. a similar way. How do you know which one's actually working? What's more? What's most strategic mm-hmm. to your business? Uh, mm-hmm. And how do you know which one that you might want to kill? Like, let's say one's at twenty percent and two are at forty. You might say that that twenty percent is like that. Maybe that's something you should kill yeah. off. But I feel like sometimes the answers aren't as clear. If something's ninety ten, it's like oh well, let's. That that is not core to our business. Let's focus on the ninety. But when something's you know uh, a less drastic uh, ratio, it's so hard to make that call because uh, yeah. you, you don't want to you don't want to cannibalize thirty percent of your user base. They're paying for the thing. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's a challenging. I could I could I very much see that. Okay, yeah. so let's jump into current startup and. You know, you and I were chatting a little bit before um, uh, before we, we we started doing the show and focusing on this idea of simplicity and enablement for engineering teams and kind of taking these first two um, these first two startups and then all the things that you've learned into this third this third startup. Tell me about where this came from and uh, kind of where the idea came from and what you guys are focusing on. Sure. Uh, uh, so AppSmith is an open source framework that is used by developers to build all sorts of custom internal applications. Now, these internal applications could be used by customer support, uh, sales team, marketing teams, or ops teams, warehousing teams, finance teams. Uh, it really could be any team inside the company. Uh, but the main thing that AppSmith does for the developers and the company is it helps them build these custom software a lot quicker. Mm. Uh, Every company has some or the other custom internal software, uh, but they are generally built really slowly, very difficult to maintain, and developers don't enjoy working on them. So, and, you know, everybody ends up unhappy in that uh, equation. So in case of AppSmith, our idea actually came from the game that I was talking about. Uh, This game, which we only ran for a period of about five months, we grew really rapidly during that period. And the engineering team was just four people, uh, including my co-founder and CTO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a really small engineering team, but we just had to build a lot. Uh, when you see this kind of scale where you go from zero to hundreds of thousands of people, every single architecture decision that you've made 
needs to be changed. Uh, during this period, we changed our uh, hosting provider. We went from Azure to AWS. Uh, we changed our, uh, uh, you know, our notification service providers, our mobile analytics providers, every single product we changed. But the one thing that did not change for us were the interfaces that we had built to manage the game, as well as the interfaces that we had built to deal with customer support requests that were coming in. Yeah. And some of these requests were as simple as, you know, can I change my phone number? Because you don't have an interface in your app to change my phone number. So can I, can you just change it for me? Or uh, can you reset my password? It could be simple things like that, or it could be something as complicated as I think this level is too complicated and you need to, uh, you know, simplify it uh, so that more people can cross this level. So something as complicated, all of those things were being built, uh, were being done through interfaces that our uh, tech team had built. Uh, so these were all internal apps that we had built. And at the end of that experience, we went away thinking, why did these interfaces take so long for us to build? Uh, when it's so easy for you to set up a website today, uh, you know, you could use WordPress or if you are an e-commerce company, you can use Shopify. Mm -hmm. But if I have to just build a single data view where I'm looking at some data from my database and I'm able to edit that data in a form beside it, why does it take a week to build that? It should be a lot quicker. Uh, so this was really my co-founder's idea because he had been building all these interfaces. Uh, so he started working on this as a side project when he was working at his uh, at the previous company. Uh, yeah. But he only thought of this as a side project because he wanted this to be an open source side project, which he plus other developers can use, but he was not sure. really thinking about it as a business. Uh, so it started from just scratching my co-founder's itch, yeah. and uh, which I think is the perfect way to start any startup. So here I didn't need to guess. Uh, the mistake that I made in my previous startup was I was guessing. Yeah. Uh, I was not making that mistake in this startup because I simply went up to my co-founders. Anytime I have a doubt, I just go and ask them, what is it that you would do? And then I use those thoughts and then distill it down to a design or a product decision. Uh, I'm not necessarily guessing about what is it that this user might want. Right. You're you're coming at it from a very educated perspective from people that are actual users. They just happen to be in the same building, exactly speaking. Exactly. exactly. How, how are you also then incorporating some of that user feedback? Do you guys do you do any um, beta groups? Are you um, using platforms that? Um, trying to think of one off the top of my head and I'm it's escaping me at the moment but there, there I mean there's off the shelf tools right now yeah. that you can integrate into your your feedback loops to capture uh you know survey feedback or product feedback from from your users how are you incorporating some of that uh so in the in the early days when we didn't have any users we were completely reliant on my co-founders sure. to talk about what is it that their vision is and it was my role as a as somebody who doesn't code to dig deeper into why is it that they wanted a certain feature mm -hmm. so that we can identify the truth. This doesn't mean we went and built everything that my co-founders wanted because that would lead to a bloated product that nobody wanted. Instead, yeah. we were constantly trying to find the underlying reasons for why somebody said uh, or suggested a particular feature. Uh, so every time somebody suggested a feature, we would go deeper into why, why, why. It was a bastardized version of the five whys uh, sure. sort of an exercise sure but it was an exercise to finding the truth for why is it that they wanted it yeah so that's what we did when we didn't have any users but once we got users we relied very heavily on 
uh, interviewing them, which is interviewing them in a one-on-one conversation, mm-hmm. as well as recording them while they were using the tool, but without us interrupting them. Yes. Uh, instead, you know, when they were actually using the tool, we would just ask them to uh, read their internal monologue to go on and talk talk us through why are they clicking something, what is it that they're trying to do, but we would never ask them any questions in that recording. Uh, both of these together were really what helped us build a really good product even before we launched because we spent a year and a half building the product before launching it. Now, this is wow. something that I would not recommend to most people, but in our case, the reason we were doing it was because uh, we knew we were following a good product process. Uh, we were listening to our users and uh, we were talking to them uh, every single week, if not every single day. And we were actually reacting to their feedback. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't building it in silo, which I think is a horrible idea. Instead, you can call consider this like a private beta uh, where sure. it wasn't available for public usage, but we still had a set of users who were giving us frequent feedback. And, uh, and we got really good at running those interviews. Uh, you know, we read Steve Portigal on uh, user interviews and we read mm-hmm. uh, The Mom Test. Uh, yep. Both these books actually helped us become better interviewers because uh, it's really easy to be a bad interviewer. Uh, it's easy to ask leading questions. Yes. Uh, so those two books really helped us tone our, tone our interview experience down and make it a more comfortable experience where our interviewee is talking more than we are. Um, do you, do you, do you tend to do this as a team or is this very much you're, you're off talking to these folks and then kind of relaying feedback, you know, back to your engineering teams, or is that something that you guys try to incorporate as a, um, uh, generically speaking, a product development team where, where engineering design and, and product and are all kind of doing this together and hearing this feedback, uh, together as a group. How do you guys typically handle that? Uh, so typically everybody in our team does user interviews. Uh, if you're an engineer who's on a customer support call, uh, you know there are a few questions that you should be asking. So you go ahead and sure. do it. If you're a designer, of course, you do a lot more interviews. Uh, and as well as a product manager, you tend to do a lot more interviews than the engineers do. Sure. But everybody has access to the first-hand information, uh, which is the recording of the call. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some cases, the automated transcript, which could be on Dovetail or could be mm-hmm. through a different service like Grain mm-hmm. or something else. But uh, we ensure that everybody has access to the first-hand data, data that comes in translated through a product manager's mind or a designer's mind, or even worse, a founder's mind, uh, actually tends to be (laughs) terrible. Uh, That's been my experience because you're just so excited about your personal ideas that in that conversation that you're having, you've totally ignored all the things that that person has told you but you've just tried to gain validation for your ideas. Uh, and, and this is something I can tell you, even though it's the, it's my 10th, 11th year uh, as a product person, I still find it incredibly difficult to do, uh, to yeah. be unbiased. Uh, so just as easier to record the conversation and let somebody else gain insights from it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's human nature. We're all biased. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's so yeah. hard. Thinking about AppSmith and kind of this, mission for, um, um, I'm probably using the wrong words, but simplicity at scale. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, if that's a good way to describe kind of what you, what you guys are honing on. Um, I'm really curious about kind of the, the, 
not necessarily the market that you guys are trying to serve, because it, it sounds like anybody building software is really uh, a, a potential user for this, uh, but really the problem that you guys are trying to solve um, to enable teams to do these things. I'm, I'm curious about that. Can you tell me a little bit about? Yeah, for sure. So our perfect target user is a backend developer with about three to five years of work experience. Okay. Now, traditionally, backend developers, they do not like dealing with front-end. Uh, they love dealing with databases, APIs, but they do not like dealing with the front end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we built AppSmith for them, uh, primarily because my co-founder, Arpit, who started working on it, is also a backend developer. Yeah. Uh, so we decided, let's just satisfy all people who kind of look like Arpit. They're people who hate centering forms, buttons, divs. Uh, they totally dislike it. So AppSmith makes that a lot easier for them. Uh, you know, it's absolute positioning using drag and drop. So you, uh, you know, don't have to deal with CSS. So that simplifies it for the backend developer. Uh, the other thing that comes up with backend developers is the fact that they do a lot of repetitive activities, things like setting up access control, uh, setting up the DevOps pipeline, uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, setting up the entire Git repo so that multiple people can contribute to it. So all of these things, AppSmith takes care of it because these are repetitive activities that backend developers have told us they do not enjoy. Mm. Would they actually pay a lot of money for eliminating these problems? Not necessarily for every one of these problems. For example, for eliminating access control related issues, they're happy to pay a lot. Uh, but eliminating some of these things, which are just uh, which are just minor annoyances, they're not actually willing to pay money, but it leads to a stronger retention. So that's why we also focus on those minor problems that uh, that somebody might not attach a dollar value to, but we know if we solve that problem, this person is going to be sticky and they will try other features and therefore they'll end up paying us in the future. Uh, so that's the way we uh, you know sometimes tackle features. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we had noticed about developers was the fact that most developer products were pretty ugly. Uh, you know they were not well designed. Uh, they were complicated to use. Because people believe that developers actually love reading documentation. Uh, in my experience, I found that to be the reverse. Uh, mm. Developers don't really like reading documentation unless they absolutely have to. Right. Uh, the second thing is developers, they use so many products on a day-to-day basis. They just use a lot more software than the average human being does. Uh, because of that, their patience for a product is also really low. I might spend five minutes evaluating a product while they might spend less than 30 seconds. Uh, So I actually realized that they make up their minds really quickly and uh, they are used to using complicated products. Uh, So we decided, okay, number one, let's make it really simple for you to understand what AppSmith does. Uh, So if you go on our website or on GitHub, we use words that developers use to describe AppSmith. We've not tried to use our words. So that's number one. Uh, The second thing is ensure that Every single interaction, uh, we eliminate the need for you to read documentation. Uh, just, I would say just these two things together, which is being easy to understand at a first glance and being easy to use at most steps in AppSmith has actually led to uh, our success. Uh, I wouldn't say AppSmith is, is still very easy to use. Uh, I think it's a long journey for us, uh, but that's our constant goal. Uh, how do I explain this to somebody without them needing to read the tooltip or reading the document. Yeah. Uh, if you can do that, uh, you know, that's like extraordinary achievement for us. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head 
I don't know, in my experience, I'm, I'm by no means an engineer, but I've, 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 I've worked with engineers, led teams and built products for, for a number of years. And I think you're right. I think engineers tend to want to solve hard problems, not necessarily get stuck in, in um, repetitive, mundane tasks and read, reading documentation. So I think those are, those are two pretty safe assumptions. Uh, and, and the second thing, I just, I love that you're trying to go after and kind of chase this idea of simplicity. And it's really hard. I think it's such a common misconception that, um, I, oh man, I hear this all the time. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a simple thing. Yeah, but simple doesn't mean easy. I think, yeah. I don't know, my experience, oftentimes simple is way harder than something that can be maybe more complex. Uh, sometimes complex yeah. is a little bit easier to 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 make a product out of than than simple. Uh, so I I love the mission. I, I think you're really onto something. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Uh, have you have you seen Picasso's drawings of the bull? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I mean, I know the artist, but I don't know that I've seen this before. I'm gonna have to Google this after after we get done. Yeah, you should you should check this out. But it's it's basically a single frame in which Picasso has drawn the bull, I believe, 16 times. Uh, oh, yeah. In every yeah. attempt, he's trying uh-huh. to remove some elements uh, so that, you know, we can still perceive it as a bull. So he starts wow. off with a really fat, well, you know, uh, well-decorated yes. bull, and he ends up yep. with something that's just a line drawing. Yep. I've got and it right here. Me, wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. Isn't it like the product process? You have to keep removing stuff all the time. Yeah. And it just takes a long time to do that. I love it. Well, Nayak, um, last question here. Um, you, you've had a you've had an incredible journey over the last uh, ten or eleven years. What's what's one thing that you feel like you should share with somebody that might be getting ready to embark on that journey, or might be in a little bit of that trough? You know, maybe hit, banging their head against the keyboard and uh, struggling to find some of that success. What's what's the one uh, what's the one piece of advice you might give that person? Uh, so I give two because tough to simplify it with one. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the, f- the first thing is the biggest reason why products fail is because you chose the wrong market. Mm. Uh, it's not that you are a terrible engineer, designer, or product manager. It's just that it's very likely you've chosen the wrong market. And you might be blaming yourself for things that are not even your fault. Oh, uh, so that's the number one thing that I would tell people, which is that uh, it's hard to believe it, but it's very possible that you failed because of other things outside of your control. Yeah. Uh, and as much as you want to blame yourself for all your failures, uh, that's not the real way of looking at things. Uh, if you really saw the world uh, in the way that it is, you would realize that uh, you had almost nothing to do with it in some cases. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the number one thing that I would say. Uh, the second thing that I would say is uh, as product people or as designers or engineers, we try to think of the world as a rational place. Uh, it's not. And the main thing that a product needs to do is to be unique. I believe it needs to be unique even before a product is useful. A lot of us are just too focused on being useful. Uh, and we forget the fact that the entire human world does a lot of irrational things. Uh, we listen to music. We pay a lot of money for beverages that do nothing for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we eat things that don't give us nutrition, but are joyful to eat. 
Uh, We spend money on loved ones who do nothing for us. You know, so the world is actually irrational and being unique is really important because that's something that human brains notice the fastest. Uh, When you're unique, uh, that's when people pay attention to you. Uh, And that's often the way we've made friends. We've made friends with people that we thought were unique. Uh, We didn't go for the, uh, you know, the people that, that we thought were exactly like other people. Or similar to that, when we chose life partners, we've chosen life partners because they were unique. We love music, which makes us feel something different. We love going to places that we've never been to. And uh, I think it's a pattern in humans that all of us notice unique things. So when you're working on something, focus on being unique first, and then you can figure out how to be useful. Wow. Um, I've... Two very profound, and I love how human they are. One of our values at SEP is be human, and uh, I I can't help but just love the uh, both of those points. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you so much, and uh, thank you for being a part of the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, I just had a lovely conversation. So thank you so much. Pat. Me as well, my friend. 